Welcome to Vontabel Now. This is a podcast series exploring fresh perspectives on investing in today's complex and uncertain market environment. I'm Andrew Crook, your host for these sessions. This is the first of several, and we're really excited to bring this to you and hope you'll get a lot of insights from it. In this particular episode, we're joined by two expert speakers, Mark Holman, CEO of 24 Asset Management, and Simon Lu Fong, Head of Fixed Income at Vontabel Asset Management. Mark and Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this podcast is going to focus on what this new look macro environment means for investors in Asia. So maybe to frame this and put it in context, Mark and Simon, if you can very briefly just introduce yourself for a moment and perhaps give an initial comment on what is the importance of income and why it's key to take a fresh perspective at the moment. Mark, starting with you. Well, I've been doing fixed income for pretty much all my life. In fact, I've done no other asset class apart from fixed income in the 31 years I've been in the markets. And my role at 24 is as CEO, but I'm also a lead portfolio manager in our multi-sector bond offerings, which really encompasses the whole world of fixed income. Why is income so important? Well, we know that interest rates are are extremely low. They're going to be at these kind of levels for pretty much the next decade, just as they have been for you know the previous decade. So we know now that we, we can't get risk-free income like we used to from anywhere, really. So I think one of the obvious places to look for income around the world, of course, is fixed income. And that does mean now taking some form of credit risk. So really understanding the economic backdrop, where we are in the cycle, gives you a really good insight for how much credit risk you can take to earn you know, how much income that you might need. So I think you know, really timely that we're talking about this, especially when we have rates at these uh, you know, anchored low levels. Great. Thank you. Simon, over to you. Hi. So I've been in fixed income since 91. So very much like Mark, I've done nothing else. People say bonds are boring, but it's been my life. I now head up the fixed income boutique at Von Tobel, where we have a variety of different fixed income products. The main ones being anything in spread, so uh, emerging markets and corporate credit. And I wouldn't disagree with anything Mark said. I think that asset allocators, when they're looking for income, are under-allocated due to historical feelings on risk to spread product. And I think in this new world that where we currently are and will continue to be, in my view, the, the allocation towards spread products needs to be higher, and that will fulfill the income deficiency, which is around the world at the moment. I think it's a good point, Simon, because I think you know, historically, you used to be able to invest in, in you know, risk-free government bonds or you know, almost risk-free type fixed income securities and still get a reasonable return. Uh, but to be clear, in, in this day and age, risk-free is return-free. Thank you. Um, thanks both of you for the intro. Obviously, you're very well placed to be commenting on these themes and these topics, given your decades combined of, of experience. So just taking a step back from specific allocation plans going forward and the impact of making different allocations, you obviously both highlighted, as is the case, we're in an environment which is very different from what most people have seen ever in their careers. So Simon, from your perspective, what are some of the key differences between the economy that we find ourselves in 2021 and what we've previously seen coming out of a recession? 
Sure. I think that the what I would call the trampoline effect will be much stronger this time around compared to a normal recession. We've never seen governments take the big chunk of pain out of it by having all of this sort of fiscal stimulus to try and take care. And I mean, the US spent, what, about 5.8 trillion. You know, if we just compare that to the, the global financial crisis in 2008, you know, they spent eight, 800 billion then. So we've had 27% of debt to GDP being spent. Globally, I think there's been about 16 trillion of support has come from governments. And I think that's been the right thing to do. I mean, the IMF said that without that help, the collapse could have been three times worse. So, you know, try and imagine that. But two questions come to my mind is, first of all, how can we afford high yields from here? And with such a massive fiscal effort that we've seen, you know, if we believe IMF forecasts, they see real growth in places like North America in 2023 have only been just 1.8. So we found ourselves in a world where debt has saved us, but it can't produce sustainable growth. And now we just have a lot more of it and we can't tolerate high yields. So that sounds like a challenging place to be for a while. Thank you. Mark, there obviously are these global vaccine rollout efforts, different paces from different parts of the world and with so far differing levels of success. And in sync with what Simon just described, does this suggest that we'll see a fairly rapid recovery fairly soon? I've never seen a cycle end this quickly. It started and ended all in March last year. And the recovery is being equally quick. You know, we've gone from late cycle to end of cycle to beginning of cycle. Today, we're, we're, we're mid-cycle and we're only a year past the end of the previous cycle. It's incredible. But I think we can learn a lot from why we went into the recession in the first place and what will trigger us getting out of the recession. If we do have good vaccine rollout, that will result in a, re- you know, a return to normality. And then we will have a very strong recovery. And interestingly, I think that the, the vaccine rollout is becoming quite predictable. Therefore, the recovery is therefore quite predictable. So there's a lot of consensus in the market right now of this rapid recovery, in particular in the US, where the vaccine rollout has been faster than almost anywhere in the world. So I think you've got a lot of consensus. Uh, and quite often you say, well, you shouldn't go with consensus. But when you've got such consensus and such a high predictability around that consensus, now, I think you, you should be going with the market here. And this is, this is quite a likely outcome that we see a very, very strong recovery in the second half of, of 2021. So what forecasts should we be paying most attention to? Simon, you've mentioned a couple of forecasts by various institutions, government bodies. Do they support this view and will it be sustainable? My hunch is the market's going to be over-optimistic about inflation and growth data. And, you know, right up until when we go into June and July, and this is going to be, or this will be the sort of peak of the, the good news potentially. So we've got to be prepared from now on for another wave of, let's say, exuberance. The risk might be that by autumn, we start to see a slowdown of this data, showing maybe that the long-term story isn't so rosy. You know, I'm also keeping an eye on the situation of growth in Asia. It's been one of the main engines of the global economy in the past 12 months, but now it seems to have peaked already and some prices of assets are starting to lose some steam. With that, you know, you've got Chinese comments on curbing risks in the financial system as being a major goal. I mean, I agree with that. I think they're doing the right thing, but that could also contain growth further. Mark, any thoughts from your perspective? Looking back at uh, the first quarter this year, 
the disruption to the market was that growth was perhaps going to be too exuberant and it was going to, it was, it was going to be inflationary. Consequently, we saw that big move upwards in, in U.S. Treasury yields. And then, you know, interest rates became the source of risk. And when interest rates become the source of risk, you can see market correlations breaking down. And that can be very, very uncomfortable for, for any risk taker, not just a fixed income risk taker, but for any risk taker. So I think we need to pay you know, quite close attention to the inflation data. That's not easy because there's a lot of noise in the inflation data now. You've got the base effects to run through, the natural changes that we're, we're going to see as a consequence of that. We've got to strip those out. You've got an incredible amount of jobs to recreate still, you know, despite the fact that in March this year, nearly a million jobs were created in the US. You've still got a lot of jobs to create. So at some point, does this rapid recovery become inflationary? And I think having a very good handle on the future of inflation, I think, is something that investors will be very well guided towards focusing on closely, because that could disrupt this rosy channel that we're currently going into. Thank you. Now, you're both clearly experts in the fixed income space. And I can just tell you, itching to highlight some of the ways that this backdrop is influencing allocation decisions for investors or potentially might. Nobody's got a crystal ball. But if we're thinking about income and yield, Mark, what are the main impacts and how it will shape asset allocation? In some ways, this cycle is, is very, very different, but in many ways, it's similar to, to all previous cycles as well. So we, we, we can learn a bit from the past here. So we, we know that we need to be pro-cyclical. We know that we've already seen the low point in interest rates, the low point in risk-free yields, the low point in treasury yields, for example. You're talking about dollars here because it's so important to, to Asian investors. And I think historically, there's been you know, good allocations to aggregate type products, which focus on the high quality part of fixed income. I think it's really important to note that, that these are going to be under pressure. They have been under pressure you know, really for the last six months. So you know, in the early phase of the cycle, you might focus on quality. You know, perhaps in the late phase of the cycle, you focus on government bonds. Early part of the cycle, you focus on quality. But from there on in, you know you're going to need to be pro-cyclical. You know you're going to need to own credit. And you're going to need to keep yourself a little bit ahead of the curve, making sure you've got more than enough credit risk to compensate for the likely increase or the rising in the in the yield curves of, of the of the risk-free rate. So I think staying ahead of the game, understanding how quickly the cycle's moving, moving you know, at the pace of that cycle, and focusing yourself on credit in the sectors that that make sense to you and are comfortably pro-cyclical. Simon, before thinking about rates and the role of rates going forward. We'll come on to that in a moment. How can an investor potentially achieve what Mark has just described? One has to be thinking about anything that is on a spread over governments. I think this is, for me, this is the number one aspect and which, you know, I'll try and tell investors, you know, till I go blue in the face. And, and people sort of see risk in spread products, which I think, you know, in some ways could be misfounded. And, you know, in many cases, you know, you could argue that some spreads or in, in corporates or countries are better than the underlying government credits, which people want to consume with these low rates. So for me, it's all about getting and ensuring that people understand that uh, you can sort of mitigate the risks in spread. Just to be you know, quite simple and blunt for, for our listeners, when we talk about spread products, and that, that covers everything that is, you know, not, that is not a government bond. And if you think that the Treasury yields are going 50 basis points higher, if you're buying a credit that's only got 50 basis points of spread, 
you're not going to make any money. You're going to lose money. So we need really quite a big cushion. So that means we do have to take a reasonable amount of credit risk. And there's probably no better time to take credit risk than early cycle when companies are repairing themselves and getting better. So you you should be focused on credit, but enough credit to compensate you for the kind of risk that Simon was talking about. And Simon, with the role of rates going forward, firstly, what do you think that is? And secondly, based on that, how does that impact an investor's decision-making over the short and longer terms, given the scenarios that you've both just painted? First, let's not forget that, in a way, the uh, government bond market's there. It's a, it's a rigged market. That means that it's allowed to move as long as it doesn't hurt the recovery or the job creation, at which point, of course, central banks intervene heavily. So the volatility of interest rates reflect the volatility of the macro data, which wasn't there before COVID. Interest rates reflect the optimism of growth and the fear of inflation. For me, as long as we have strong growth and inflation follows, which is quite logical, then yields can go up without such a devastating effect. Should growth disappoint, though, we'll see a sharp snapback in the level of yields. And this is potentially a scenario that I would look for later in the year. Some parts of the real economy, though, I mean, you know, whether you look at margin growth or total hours work, for example, are still massively lagging what rates anticipate. So look, for me at the moment, I think that, you know, actually I like rates in a way going higher as a sort of active investor. It is giving us some margin here, but I really do worry about how sustainable the recovery is. And I think that if it's not sustainable, there'll be a lot of people who will be happy to have bonds. I think what Simon's referring to, you know, 2022, 2023, and it is difficult to determine where the economy will be then. We've, we've seen so many unprecedented events occur to support this recovery. And then there's going to be more, you know, with more fiscal expansion to support the ongoing recovery. And it's going to take a lot. At some point, we could run out of road with the amount of money that uh, the authorities are willing to prepare to, to spend, or, or we could discover that there are certain parts of the economy that have been more permanently damaged and, and a full recovery isn't possible. So, so you know, right now, when we're sitting here all optimistic, knowing that in some point in the not-too-distant future, we're all going to return back to work, at some point in time, we're going to face some of the consequences of the previous 12 months and realize that that it all is not past as good as it could be. So it's definitely not a one-way street, as, as Simon pointed out. Now, does that mean, Simon, you've, you've highlighted already the need to be mindful of risk, obviously, as, as, as Mark. Is there anything different at the moment? And if so, what's different about how investors can and should be managing the risk in their the income part of their portfolios? Being active helps to protect the portfolio. We had rates that fell uh, last March to half a percent. And now, you know, we went up to around 170. Now we've stabilized at around 160 here. I think that, you know, for me as a bond investor, as I said, since 91, this just shows the the real need to be active because those moves are actually really large, you know, especially on sort of long end bonds. You know, if you get moves of 100 basis points plus, you're making or losing double digit returns. So for you, with this increased volatility in rates, be active. This cycle is so quick. And I, I know some of our listeners might say, oh, you would say that because you're active managers. But let me just you know, showcase a few things for you. Back in February, March last year, 
you should own US treasuries. That was the asset to own. But from the 12th of March onwards, treasuries lost you money. And they lost you money, actually quite a lot of money in the subsequent 12 months. Straight after this period, you should have started buying credit. And you should have started buying what the Fed told you to buy, which was we're, we're standing behind investment grade. So triple B rated bonds did fantastically well. But by the time we got through to November and the vaccines were being produced and, and being uh, approved, at this point in time, we'd already gone beyond the early part of a cycle and beginning to go into the mid part of a cycle. And this is why triple B rated bonds really since the beginning of this year have started losing new money as well as that rates move has kicked in. So you really had to move you know, from treasuries to triple Bs, from triple Bs further down the credit curve, you know, making sure that also that you're that you're hanging off you know, the right rates curve, not just the one that's hurting you most. So that never before have you had to be as active in a cycle so quickly as you have in this one. So, so for a passive investor who likes to use passives, you need to be a very, very active and precise passive investor to, to keep up with what's going on. Mark, do you feel that at the moment there are any differences in terms of how the banking sector or different types of corporates are responding to the environment that we're in? The banking sector uh, question, I think, is perhaps the single biggest difference from this cycle to the previous cycle, and in fact, to many other cycles. But just contrasting this cycle with the last one, we went into the last crisis, which was you know, a financial crisis caused by the fact that the banks had taken too much risk. They didn't have enough capital. But look at them today. The, the, the quality of the bank's balance sheets has never been this high. They've never had this much capital. They've never had this much liquidity. They've never had this much regulation. And this time round, if we look back over the last 12 months, you know, most banks have more capital today than they had 12 months ago. And that is, that is unique. After you know, the first year of an economic downturn, to have more capital at this stage than the previous year, that is unique. So the banking system is helping the recovery. That was, I think, fairly clear prior to this cycle ending to, to those that follow the banking sector quite closely. So I think that's been a standout feature. And I think a lot of investors were always a little bit wary of the banks, thinking, well, when the next recession comes, it's going to be the same old story. The banks are going to do very badly. But the banks, I think, have had to prove to the rest of the investor world that they are capable of withstanding the toughest of recessions. And I think what we're seeing now in all the banking results is that they have been super resilient and they deserve a re-ranking which is you know, one of the reasons that uh, that's a sector that, that, that we like. Thank you. If we think about, again, back to the sensible allocations that investors should consider, diversification is clearly always important. Different commentators suggest it's you know in, in even more important now, the right type of diversification. Simon, from your point of view, what does that mean in terms of the bond market? Does it mean, especially for investors in Asia who naturally have to some extent a home bias, where should they be looking and how should they be looking to diversify? I think you should be looking everywhere. I think that's the type of world we're in. You should be looking at, well, let's use another word for spread, big yield, high yield with diversification. The sort of big yields from either EM or corporate credit spreads, they, they, they're more immune or will give you protection to the movement in rates and uh, also give you good safety in your absolute performance as well. And then we need diversification in many different ways because we live in a world where, you know, sometimes IG is better than high yield. 
Sometimes EM is better than DM and vice versa. So I just think that you need to be able to diversify your investments to mitigate any bad surprises on specific parts of the market. Mark, Warren Buffett and Ray Dalio have been vocal recently about the scepticism over bonds and to some extent, what's the point of buying them? Now, this makes good media copy and good headlines, so inevitably it gets profiled. Are they right or wrong, though? Unfortunately, no, I think the comments that they made were were maybe overplayed or maybe slightly misrepresented, and the audience may have taken them the wrong way. What they were referring to was very high-quality bonds, mainly government bonds. Government bonds are probably going to hurt you, and I totally agree that there's, there's little or no value in very high-quality bonds. You know, Yields are low. Chances are that, that, that yields may go higher, so therefore, what's the point in owning them? To that extent, they are correct. But the, the bond market, as we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes, is a lot more than just treasury bonds. We, we, we've spoken about the, the, the need not to own this kind of asset class. It's a bit like me saying to you, it's going to rain tomorrow. Yeah, of course it's going to rain tomorrow, but, but where's it going to rain and where's it not going to rain? And we have the chances, as Simon was, was articulating, to buy bonds from, from all over the world. And when the, when the economic recovery is strong, then credit tends to do well. Bonds get upgraded more than they get downgraded, which is what we're already seeing in this cycle. And credit spreads contract. So credit spreads contracting means that you can make capital gains and earn your income. So it is quite possible you know, to build a, you know, a pretty sensible portfolio of well-managed risks yielding something like 4% and not take some of the risks that the Warren and Ray have been talking about. So we, we don't want to be in long-dated, low-spread product. We can be in, as uh, Simon was saying, higher-spread, short-dated product, and then achieve what fixed income is, is looking to achieve, which is income and stable underlying risk. So I, I think they are correct, but they, they missed half the picture, sadly. Thank you. Simon, that potentially suggests that there are inevitably myths around the fixed income market that I guess would be useful to dispel for investors? What what would you say are some of the, the common ones that you hear? I think the idea or the myth that the market can reallocate away from fixed income into equities or let's say, I don't know, real estate or something else. I mean, look, fixed income is the biggest market in the world. It's the most liquid. It's the most transparent. So I just think it's impossible. And they still will retain their defensive qualities when you need them. And again, sorry to hammer this point home, Mark and I have said it quite a bit today, but you know, when government bonds were, you know, in the US as a proxy were 180 and then they went to half a percent last year, I mean, you you would have been really happy that you had uh, government bonds. So in a way, low yields don't mean no return. And especially now they've popped up back to, you know, 160, 170. You know, they could easily drop 100 basis points from here. And you could end up in long-end bonds making double-digit returns. People think that they can just have equity in their portfolio. And, and for diversification reasons, that I think that would not be quite sane. Thank you. Mark, what else is there that you hear and feel it's important to dispel? Find for me another form of income that is as stable as fixed income. You know, I can buy an equity dividend, it gets turned off. I can buy a property and the other tenant leaves. You know, we're, At least with fixed income, if I'm buying a four-year bond and it's yielding 4%, I know in four years I made 16%. So you know, I, I do think that sometimes when commentators you know, talk about fixed income, they only talk about government bonds or they only refer to, to aggregate products which contain mainly government bonds or, or, or low-spread product. 
what we do forget is you know, that fixed income is, is bond investing. It's lending to a company. And, and all we need to do is for that company to stay solvent and we will get the income that comes from that bond. And that solves so many investors' problems. We're nearly at the end of this session. It's been very interesting. I really appreciate all of your insights. What I think would be really useful and interesting for our listeners is if each of you could provide a couple of takeaways, maybe recapping the key considerations for investors in Asia when looking at their income portfolio against the backdrop of today's investment landscape. Mark, I'll start with you. Number one is that this is a very fast-moving cycle. And we need to stay uh, ahead of the fast-moving cycle, and we need to move at least with the pace of it. So we need to be active. No question, we do need to be active. And the second takeaway is that income will remain the scarce commodity, I think, for the, for the next decade. And fixed income is a place, I think, that you'll be able to find the solutions to your income problems with, with the least amount of ancillary risks. And to get that income, you're going to need to invest in some form of credit, you know, whether it's credit sourced from the US, credit sourced from Europe, credit sourced from you know, different sectors. This is what you're going to need to do and take the appropriate amount of credit risk to solve your income needs. Thank you. Simon, it was to some extent easier for you because you had longer to think, but unfortunately, you can't repeat what Mark <laughs> said. So what are your takeaways? <laughs> Well, you know, Mark said it so eloquently that for fixed income, you've got to be active and you go for those big yields. Uh, those would be my two takeaways. That's great. Uh, Mark, Simon, thanks very much again for your time and the benefits of your many decades of collective experience in investing in the fixed income and bond markets. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Vontabel Now. And we'll look forward to continuing this conversation in our next podcast, so stay tuned. This recording is for information purposes only, and nothing contained in this recording should constitute a solicitation or offer or recommendation to buy or sell any investment instruments, to affect any transactions, or to conclude any legal act of any kind whatsoever, except as permitted under applicable copyright laws. None of this information may be reproduced adapted, uploaded to a third party, linked to, framed, performed in public, distributed or transmitted in any form by any process without the specific written consent of Vontabel. To the maximum extent permitted by law, Vontabel will not be liable in any way for any loss or damage suffered by you through the use or access to this information or Vontabel's failure to provide this information. Our liability for negligence, breach of contract or contravention of any law as a result of our failure to provide this information or any part of it or for any problems with this information which could not be lawfully excluded is limited at our option and to the maximum extent permitted by law to resupply this information or any part of it to you or to pay for the resupply of this information or any part of it to you. Keep in mind that past performance is not a reliable indicator of current or future performance and forecasts are inherently limited and should not be relied upon as an indicator of future performance.